Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO and I'm especially delighted tonight to welcome Carol Jacobi from London from the National Portrait Gallery to talk about Holman Hunt. To introduce her, I would like to invite Catherine Lockman. I'm going to read her title because twice I've got it in the wrong order. The Deputy Director of Research and the R. Fraser Elliott Curator of Prints and Drawings. Thank you, Gillian. Um, welcome, everyone. It gives me huge pleasure to introduce my comrade-in-arms, Carol Jacoby, without whom uh, Sin and Salvation, Holman Hunt, and the Pre-Raphaelite Vision simply would never have come to pass. Um, uh, Carol is um, uh, the most recent uh, scholar to take uh, a go at Holman Hunt. He's a very sticky wicket. Um, her predecessor, Judith Bronker, spent the better part of 30 years writing the catalogue Raisonne, which finally came out about two or three years ago and which has won many, many awards. Uh, and, um, but um, she and I both come out of an earlier period in art history than uh, Carol. And so it was with great pleasure that um, I met Carol, thanks to a mutual friend at the Tate, and that um, I greeted Carol as my um, conspirator and co-editor on the Holman Hunt catalogue, which I'm sure you have seen, and if not, I hope you will see and buy in our shop because it's a splendid um, publication. Uh, Carol began her work on Hunt about 19 years ago and in 2006 published a book on uh, Hunt called William Holman Hunt, Painter, Painting and Paint. Um, and took a very, very new look at this uh, quite intriguing artist. Um, she has worked on exhibitions on two other members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, John Everett Millay, which was recently a huge hit at Tate Britain, and Ford Maddox Brown, a uh, horse of another color. She's contributing to the forthcoming Cambridge Companion to the Pre-Raphaelites, and um, she's uh, going to work on another book on the Pre-Raphaelites in which sexual imagery will be her central interest. Carol's very good at that stuff. I'm far, I mean, I'm far too old-fashioned, but she doesn't flinch. The imagery, we, oh, the imagery, not the sex, right. <laughs> Carol does actually have another job. She teaches at Birkbeck College in London, and she is the Leverhulme Fellow in the History of Portraiture at the National Portrait Gallery in London, where she's writing a book on um, a 20th century English artist and muse named Isabel Rothorn. Uh, who was closely associated with Giacometti and with Francis Bacon, who painted her many times under a different name. Um, I simply couldn't have done this exhibition without Carol. She's not only uh, a great colleague, she's a great friend, and she has been my um, hand across the sea throughout this uh, extremely complicated um, exhibition, which has taken the better part of 15 years to pull together because, as any of you probably know, these paintings are as rare as hen's teeth. They're the most popular pictures in all British museums, and um, negotiating the loans has not been an easy business, and in that, Carol has been my constant companion and helpmate, and so it gives me great pleasure to welcome her to this platform. Well, 
I should just say before I begin that I was totally thrilled to find out um, that there was going to be an exhibition of Hunt because it was very much overdue. It's 40 years since the last exhibition. So when I heard that Kathy was championing this, I was very grateful to be, to be involved and incredibly excited to be here. It's the first time that he's had an exhibition on North American soil. And I think it's a very important moment because, as Cathy says, his paintings are quite rare and it's quite difficult to, to get them um, lent. So thank you very much. <clears throat> um, I think that the 20th century, we can say this now we're in the 21st, but the 20th century had a very odd relationship with the Victorians. Even the fact that we call the Victorians the Victorians, we call them after, you know, after an, an old lady, we call the whole culture of that period after an old lady. We'd never dream of, of um, calling the French, um, French 19th century anything other than the 19th century. And I think it's a relationship a little bit like the relationship of an 18-year-old with his parents. You know, you don't want to, you want them to know their place. You don't want to ever imagine that they were young or debonair or um, daring in any way. You don't want to imagine them having sex. And I think that in the 21st century, possibly we can come to a more mature relationship with British 19th century art, with our forebears. Um, perhaps we've grown up a little bit. And I think this exhibition is incredibly timely. I don't think it could have happened in the 20th century. I think the tw it's very important that it's happening in the 21st century. And what's, what, what went on with Hunt in, in the 20th century was that a, a set of myths grew up about him and they tended to be recycled. And Hunt's not the only painter, the only artist that suffers this kind of recycling of certain, a certain set of information just goes round and round and round through the system, through books, through exhibitions, through films and so on. And um, I thought I'd just go through the Hunt myth with you. And you, Some of you might already know it. So... Um, he started off, um, this is actually a cartoon of Hunt by um, Rossetti, um, done his, his youth. I thought it would be nice to find a picture of him without a beard. And he starts off as an art student at the Royal Academy. And while he's there, he reads a book by John Ruskin called Modern Painters. And in so doing, he discovers Truth to Nature, Truth to nature is not really a phrase that John Ruskin particularly uses, but it's become our shorthand for the idea that you paint in this very hyper-realistic way with great attention to the appearance of things. So Hunt has this light bulb, truth to nature. He gets together with some other students, art students at the Royal Academy. They all agree. And at 21 they get together and they form a group to reform English art, which is called the Paraphylite Brotherhood. At 26, Hunt has a conversion, a religious conversion in front of his own painting, The Light of the World, which always seems to be kind of a convenient story to tell in your old age. And he becomes Holy Hunt. And he spends the rest of his life um, adhering to Paraphylite principles and traveling in the Middle East, making illustrations of the Bible, and also getting very grumpy about Impressionism. So that's the myth. And I think, you know, one look at the sort of dazzling paintings in the exhibition well, is enough to dispel that myth. I hope so, anyway. That's why I think it's so important that we actually get to see the paintings in the flesh 
And one of the problems with Hunt has been that his paintings do not reproduce. They're a nightmare to reproduce because of its extraordinary technique. And so I think when you see them in, in reality, you can see they're jewel-like, they're bright, they're dazzling. And um, in fact, um, this painting in particular, I think, gives the lie to the idea that there is some antagonism between what Hunt was doing, what many British artists were doing, and what was going on on the other side of the channel, um, and particularly with Impressionism. But Hunt's truth to nature isn't just about looking at the appearance of things very carefully. So here we have this um, extraordinarily idiosyncratic bit of the English coast. It's sort of Hunt's uh, antidote to the sort of stalwart white cliffs of Dover, this collapsing, crumbling piece of England, which is sort of incredibly specific, hasn't been painted before in that kind of detail, or the sort of the detail of a specific species of, 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 of sheep. Not only do we have that kind of detail, but he's actually looking not just at things themselves, but the way that um, light bounces off things. And this is very important. Hunt is the first artist ever who actually takes his canvases and paints them more or less in their entirety outside, uh, on plein air, as it comes to be called, in, in France. At this stage, um, artists are occasionally sketching outside or starting canvases outside. Hunt takes the canvas outside and he, he, he transcribes tiny brushstroke by tiny brushstroke the actual effects of light bouncing off objects. And as a result of this... Um, I hope you can see in this, in this reproduction, I, every reproduction of Hunt is a, is a crime, really, but I hope you can see this extraordinary blue shadows. People had always thought shadows were brown before. The, um, the blue shadows, the yellow and the pale blue highlights in the sheep's wool. And most particularly, the way that light can sometimes not just show you form, but dissolve form. The, 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 you can see that the horizon... Uh, actually illustrates a pa passage in Ruskin where he says, the closest that we can ever get to understanding, to, to seeing infinity, is the place where the horizon and the sky dissolve together on the horizon of the sea. And Hunt paints that extraordinary turquoise effect. So he's, he's, he's not just painting objects, but he's painting the light effects of objects. And when this painting was exhibited in Paris in 1855, it was the, you know, it, it caused great furore. It was, um, Delacroix rushed home and wrote in his, his journal, hunt sheep, hunt sheep, you know, with exclamation marks. And it was a real kind of inspiration to the French avant-garde 20 years before Impressionism is established. And like Monet, um, like the Impressionists, Hunt was absolutely fascinated by different light effects. And all through the exhibition, you'll see a whole array of different light effects. So, for example, the contrast between the brilliant brightness outside in Claudio and Isabella and the, and the shadows of the sort of cold, stony interior. Now, I'm going to show quite a lot of slides, and I'm not going to stop and identify each one, so I just want you to kind of relax and look at them. They're all in the exhibition, so you can go back and look at them in your own time. Um, the Light of the World was painted entirely in moonlight. It's like a study in moonlight. He actually made a little hut in the orchard and sat up every night painting it, and he actually made um, 
the lantern so that he could study the effect of the light coming through the apertures of the lantern and falling on the white um, cloth of Christ. And he famously um, used, uh, sent his mother's damask, white damask tablecloth to the tailors to be made up into a robe so he could look at the effect of the light uh, falling on it. Um, and it came back as a sort of tailcoat. And so he had to actually get a needle and thread and, and, and sew what he wanted himself. Just to give a measure of the sort of you know, the intensity of his determination to always paint things from what he could see from his senses rather than from convention or formula. Uh, this um, is a painting that Hunt, it's not in the exhibition, but I wanted to show it to you because at one point um, Hunt was finishing off the light of the world in the studio. He'd been up all night and the moon went in and he wasn't able to paint. And he turned round and he painted what he saw through the window. And this uh, is extraordinary view of the Thames with rather, par- or rather appropriately, I think it's a, I think it's a painting paint factory, I think, isn't it, Kathy? Kathy's the expert on this. Um, a, a paint factory um, with the lights burning all night. It's a real industrial revolution image on the opposite side of the Thames. And the sort of the, the, the smog. And uh, you can see this is sort of very proto-impressionist painting. Uh, I think this very much is a painting about darkness, very much a kind of um, the alternative to the painting about light that he's, that he's painting in his image of Christ. Um, he, Hunt was also very interested in texture and the effects of light on texture. And one of the extraordinary parts of the light of the world is the um, shimmering effects of Christ's robe. And do have a look at that. But you also have these beautiful textural effects um, in Isabella and the pot of basil with the properties, the, the things that he collected in Florence, the um, the lusterware and the marquetry and the and the and the and the and the marble, and, but also, of course, her hair and the textures of her of her gauzy nightgown. And you see, um, of course, the most astonishing light that Hunt paints is this slanting, hot light of the Middle East that he goes and observes. And this brings me to. Um, Looking at the actual way he paints, I took some micro photographs of this painting here, the afterglow of Egypt, and I was incredibly surprised when I looked through the microscope to see that Hunt's paintings, when you, when you actually are able to see the individual tiny brush strokes, clearly are, have been painted just like an Impressionist painting. They are individual tiny prismatic strokes of color. And in fact, there is no brown in this painting. If you um, actually looked through a microscope with the sort of brown feathers of um, one, of the, one of the pigeons in the shadows, you actually see the feathers are actually made up of the colours of the rainbow, the colours of light, of blue, yellow and red um, dabs of paint. And I notice you've got rather beautiful Renoir in the gallery quite near the Hunt exhibition. And I think looking at these paintings through a microscope, it very much reminds me of those sort of feathery, bright colours that Renoir applies to the canvas, which then resolve in your eye into, into the colours they should be. So I think what we can see is that far from being an artist who paints according to rules and principles, um, Hunt was an artist who was always experimenting, exploring, looking, very curious about the world. And in fact, he was incredibly, and throughout his whole life, 
very, very suspicious of any kind of rule, any kind of convention. And I think one of the problems, one of the reasons the myth has been so difficult to shift is actually Hunt's own fault in that he wrote in his 80s a memoir called Paraphletism and the Paraphlite Brotherhood, which has been a kind of shortcut for art historians. They think, oh, okay, what's that painting about? What was he doing then? Let's go read his memoir. But he was in his 80s when he wrote this memoir. But more importantly, his eyesight had gone, and a large part of it was, I think, influenced by his, his wife, who had been a toddler when the Paraphlite Brotherhood was founded and who hadn't actually been there. And I think he was rather influenced by giving the public back the myth that they'd created about him. This is the sort of early Hello magazine, um, the life and work of William Holman Hunt. And you can see, you know, here is Holman Hunt in his beautiful home. Um, and I think he sort of very much, Hunt was very astute about the power of celebrity, about how you manufacture celebrity. And I think his late memoir gives back the image that, to the, to, the, to the people of England that they've created, that they want. And it leaves out a tremendous amount of his career. Um, it leaves out his private life. And this is that same wife, this is Edith, um, in, in a private moment. I really love this photograph of her with her cat sitting on her back. And it just sort of reminds us that there is another hunt. Um, there is a, a, a hunt who... Um, who did have a private life, who had private preoccupations, and that's what I'm going to talk about for the remainder of this evening. So, let's start at the beginning. Hunt was born into the largest, fastest-changing, most industrially advanced city in the world, London, and he, his father was a warehouse owner, so he was actually right in the centre of it, in the city of London, in Cheapside. This is a slightly later photograph of Cheapside. And this urban, um, highly mobile society, um, particularly the sort of con vast concentration of people and new money, created um, very um, flexible social mobility and um, many people sort of made good, and those, peop those people who we now know as the middle classes were, I think, perhaps quite anxious about the mobility. Okay, they succeeded, but they, once they succeeded, they wanted to entrench themselves to set up their identity with a set of values and rules and batten down the hatches, if you like. And I think Hunt is very much in the midst of this process happening, but he's one of those people who is questioning what values should we live by? We're not going to live by the old aristocratic values anymore, but what are the new values going to be for this new, fast-changing world? How should we behave? Um, is there any point in having art anymore? Um, all sorts of questions like that. Uh, um, in a way, he, almost, he was an intelligent man. He almost could not um, confront those questions. Um, in particular, I want to start the story, I want to sort of zoom on a little bit to the point where Hunt, as I've already said, was a, a student at the Royal Academy, and to 1858. 18, 1848. 1848 um, is the year that the Paraphylite Brotherhood was founded. I think what's very important to remember is that 1848 was a year of revolutions. There was some kind of popular uprising in practically every country in Europe. Uh, in, in, we didn't actually quite have one in, in Britain, but we very nearly did. This is the, the Chartist demonstrations, which Hunt actually um, attended as a spectator with Millet. And I think people were sort of 
saw the revolution was going on over the, over the channel uh, and in other countries and feared there might be one or in some cases hoped there might be one in this country too. I think you need to see these guys coming together and making, forming a group to reform British art as part of that bigger picture, as a sort of revolution in art that isn't just about art but is about society and life and values and how we're going to live. And I want to spend a little time looking at with you the painting that Hunt exhibited at the Royal Academy that year. Um, this is just a younger Hunt, just to remind yourself that, you know, we're, this is what we're dealing with here is somebody in his early 20s. Uh, here's another drawing of him. I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at this painting. I'm sorry about the reproduction, but it has actually been cleaned um, recently and is... So you see the clean version of it in the exhibition. But this is a classic example of a painting that's absolutely unphotographable because of Hunt's technique. Um, The the light bounces differently uh, onto the photographic plate than it does on your eye. It's not uh, a painting about industry or um, London or or obviously about rebellion. It's, It's a painting about a medieval world. And I think it's important to understand that in Britain, painting pictures of modern life was no big deal. In in France, it was. We're taught that's a very important thing. In Britain, it's been going on since the 18th century, and it wasn't a sort of statement of avant-gardeness to paint a, a modern life picture. What many artists and writers did was they used the medieval world as a kind of space where they could explore very modern themes. This is actually an illustration of a poem by John Keats set in medieval times. And it tells a story of um, a kind of Romeo and Juliet story of lovers who are disapproved of by their family. And this is, of course, a very uh, modern idea in a way, the idea that do you um, get together with someone out of your individual affection for them or do you get together with someone because of social expectation, the blending of two dynasties? Because this is a very urgent idea in the 19th century. There's a wonderful painting in the exhibition by Arthur Hughes um, called April Love, which is about a couple not being able to marry because society hasn't deemed that he's got enough money to support her. And this is a painting about true love triumphing over social expectations and social codes. So it's very typical that Hunt should pick it up, I think, pick up um, Keats' poem that tells the story. Now, some of you might know the poem. The centre of the poem is that Porphyro, um, the gentleman here, has snuck into Madeline's home and he sneaks into her bedroom. And just as she's falling asleep and dreaming of him, he kind of makes her a dream real by sort of getting into bed with her. Keats is very kind of misty about the actual moment of coming together, but it was sort of controversially assumed to be a a poem in which they did, in which, you know... um, they came together sexually outside um, the sanctions of marriage. And, but Hunt doesn't focus on that. He does refer to it in the purple of Madeline's dress, which refers to the line in the poem, um, which I can just read to you. <clears throat> Into her dream he melted as the rose blended its odour with the violet. But he refers to it very subtly. What he wants, what he's interested in, is not so much that these guys got together behind their parents' back, 
but that she is leaving with him, that they're sort of going out into a new world, that they're rejecting the whole world of their parents, the whole world of the establishment. So he very much um, sets up a contrast in his painting between the family and their decadence and their sort of partying in the background here and um, the couple who are sort of going, um, following their true instincts and going out into the real world, which you can see through the open door on the right-hand side. So there's not just a contrast between decadence, a decadent, this decadent society of the older generation and the truth of the youth, but also there's a contrast in style, um, in that he's rejecting the style, the conventional old Royal Academy style of the old masters with all its conventions and its lack of naturalism. And the style he's painting in is also not decadent. It's also true. It's also more real, not according to codes and conventions. So that he has this extraordinary detail in the painting. Uh, he actually studies from nature lots of parts of the painting which normally wouldn't have been thought important enough to bother with doing that for. Um, he notices things like people that have blonde eyelashes, the way that at the bottom of each eyelash there's a little glimmer of light. Can you see that? Or um, if we look at Madeline's hand, look at the fantastic way that the light falls through the fingers and makes little patches of brightness on the inside of her palm. These are things that haven't been painted before. They haven't been seen before. So you've got a connection between the, the truthfulness of looking at things and a sort of a kind of moral truthfulness, um, a lack of artificiality. The other aspect of this, which is very modern, even though it's a medieval scene, is the incredible sort of psychological approach that Hunt takes. And this is a very new thing. And I think it's something that Hunt and the other Paraphylites do, which really is also being done by poets and novelists of the time, which is looking forward to the invention of psychology itself, to the work of um, William James and, and, of course, Freud. And one of the things you can do as you go around the exhibition is appreciate the fantastic poetry of, of Hunt's hands. He never reuses the same hand. He certainly never uses a formulaic hand. Every hand in his paintings expresses some kind of inner, inner state of the figure. And if we look here, we can see the way that Madeline's hand um, is just hovering over the hilt of Porphyro's sword. He wants his hand is to sort of grip the sword. He wants to have a fight. Uh, she knows that they'll be torn apart um, if, if, if attention is drawn to him. So she's sort of staying his hand. There's a tremendous tension in that gesture, as well as a kind of sexual undertone, which um, I won't go further with. But one of the things we noticed when, we were, when, when the painting was cleaned was that Hunt had actually changed Madeleine's other hand and that whereas originally it was lying flat on Porphyro's cloak in a sort of kind of acquiescent kind of way, that Hunt, you can see here the old finger, um, the shadow of the old finger, that Hunt actually changed the hand. He flexed her fingers, so instead of lying flat, they actually become flexed. She's actually pushing him. 
And there's a tremendous difference in that. You can even sort of do it to yourself and feel the difference of the idea of her sort of going along with leaving and her actually pushing him towards the door, her participating, her being completely you know, equal in, in, this, in this abduction. It's not like she is being abducted. It's like she's part of it. And I'm, I'm not sort of... Um, fantasizing here because if we look at Hunt's drawings we can see that originally he had um, a, a much more timid Madeline and um, other drawings I'm sorry this is sort of kind of lost in the translation of the projection but this is a whole page of drawings where he's experimenting with different combinations of Madeline Porphyro and in most of them he's got um, Porphyro on the other side um, in other words he's sort of just sort of ushering her out the door so this is Hunt not just the curiosity of looking at things, but also the curiosity about relationships and how the, the actual sort of interconnection of two people's bodies, the sort of pose of those two people, can explore a relationship that's not just simple. It's not, oh, they love each other, running away. There's the sort of the danger, the sort of difference, the sort of her calming him down, her wanting to go with him. All of these things are just explored through the changes he makes to the composition and even finally to the fingers of Madeline uh, in the, one of the last stages of painting. This whole idea about um, relationships between men and women is something he's very preoccupied with uh, during this, um, his early 20s. And if we look at the paintings, we can see couple after couple after couple um, where he's sort of looking at different permutations. He never repeats himself, different permutations of relationships. I think he's very preoccupied with the idea, a very modern idea, of consent, of, a, of the difference between a mutual relationship and a relationship where someone is being exploited. And, of course, because of the context of Victorian times, usually it was a woman who was being exploited. So his subsequent two paintings, both of which are um, stories from Shakespeare, um, deal with um, exploitative relationships. And in particular, this is one of the prizes of the exhibition. It's such a beautiful painting from Birmingham. Um, Valentine rescuing Sylvia from Proteus. And don't know if any of you know the, the play um, Two Gentlemen of Verona. It's not one of Shakespeare's best-known plays. But it's a quite a strange scene to choose, very not that commonly illustrated, where... Um, Valentine, the central figure, has discovered in the forest his best friend attempting to rape his fiancée. He's lured her there and tried to force himself on her. And you can see Hunt has shown the grass all trampled in the foreground. Um, even more poignant, in a way, is the fact that um, Proteus is, in fact, engaged himself, but his fiancée is present at the scene, disguised as a page. She leans against the tree. And you can see that another one of Hunt's fantastic hands, behind her back, she's turning her engagement ring round around the fi her finger. And one wonders what she's thinking. It's very difficult um, to, to imagine what she's thinking in this extraordinary situation. And this is an incredibly tense image. Nobody's looking at anybody else. Um, everybody's connected. It's like a knot of figures. Everyone's connected, again, by, by hands, but in a very kind of unresolved and kind of tense way. It's very tempting to relate this back to um, the kind of tensions, the sexual tensions and triangles that were going on 
in the Paraphylite Brotherhood at this time. So just before I, I go on and look at this last relationship, I just want to say a little bit about the Paraphylite Brotherhood. Um, the main painters uh, within the Brotherhood, all art students of the Royal Academy, were um, John Everett Millet, um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and William Holman Hunt. And they just got together and agreed. They agreed tremendously. They all loved romantic poetry. They were all fed up with society. They were certainly fed up with the conventions at the Royal Academy. And so they decided that they would get together and they would exhibit together and they would paint according to the same ideals and that people would see these paintings in the Royal Academy and go, oh my God, we've got it wrong all these years um, and British art would be reformed. And um, they, they stayed together uh, and exhibited together until I would say about the date that this painting was done, 1853. Um, Rossetti was, you know, his heart was never quite in it, but Millet um, really succeeded um, from being very much criticised by the public in the first instance, winning the public over to the Paraphylite way of painting. So by the time you get to 1853, there is really no need for the Brotherhood anymore. Um, Millet has been elected an associate at the Royal Academy. Um, they're, they're finding buyers for their paintings. Um, and I think the, the, the Paraphylite Brotherhood really lasted that very short but very important period of time. But in 1853, interestingly, all three of them decided to approach um, modern life subjects. And uh, again, we're very lucky to have from the Tate, The Awakening Conscience, uh, Hunt's painting of a kept woman um, in flagrante uh, in her, her, um, her apartment in St. John's Wood that the aristocratic protector will have bought for her and set her up in. Now, as I say, our modern life paintings are not that unusual uh, in, in Vic Victorian times. And in fact, the story was based on an extremely popular book by Dickens called David Copperfield, which features a young, innocent woman coming into, t uh, into London and being sort of corrupted but what is really astonishing about this picture is that most Victorian depictions of uh, women who um, lived this kind of life showed those women as abject, as very often as suicides or on the verge of suicide, as exiles um, living in the streets uh, and that kind of thing. And this, of course, was very reassuring for the middle-class audience that were looking at these things because you wanted to see these women getting their just desserts according to popular morality. Hunt um, does something very different. He, he gives us a portrait of a prostitute, if you like. He, 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 sh he shows you her actually in the midst of doing what, what she does. One of the pieces of research that came up in this exhibition was that whereas it had always been thought she was wearing some kind of house coat or sort of, you know... Um, what she has actually done is she's wearing a top, but she's removed her skirt. She's only wearing her petticoat. That makes incredibly obvious what's going on. One of the little details I love about this painting is the way that the, the, the gentleman hasn't even bothered to remove both of his gloves. He's just dumped his hat on the table. Can you see it there? And he's still got one glove on. The other is on the floor, discarded like he's going to discard her. We can read everything about their relationship from that one gloved hand. 
Um, so why has Hunt depicted um, this outcast figure in such an intimate and upfront and direct way? Well, the reason is that um, this is just an illustration, sorry, from David Copperfield. This is the normal way that fallen women, as they were called, would be depicted. Um, the reason is that he's in love with the woman he's painting. This is an only recently discovered drawing by Hunt, um, the only one we know of, of uh, the woman, Annie Miller, who modelled for The Awakening Conscience. And when he'd, he met her, she was 16, she was living in a pub, not in a flat above a pub, she was living in a pub on, on the floor. Um, she probably made her living from um, sex work, from bar work, that kind of thing. And he, um, he took her away. He placed her in a boarding house under the protection of the landlady. He um, paid for her to be dressed. And what story does that, this remind you of? By Bernard Shaw. Pygmalion, yes. It's one of the models for Pygmalion. And I think what Hunt hoped was that if he gave Annie independence, if she wasn't beholden to men financially, she had her own education, her own things, uh, what he was really keen on was that she perhaps could be in a position to earn her own living, then that they could have a, 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 a partnership that he could be with her. He certainly was in love with her. And so when in, in the light of this, we can see um, the awakening conscience as... Um, quite personal painting, the idea that possibly a fallen woman could have a new life, could reinvent herself, could literally, as is happening in this painting, rise. She's standing up. She's leaving the lap of, um, of the protector. And you know, I think if we go back to the, the landscape um, that I showed you earlier, that while he was painting the light of the world during the night time, during the daytime, he was painting the awakening conscience. And so when he, he, he painted this scene of the Thames at night, it wasn't just about darkness, um, about industry. It was also, I think, about the fate that he feared might um, result for Annie if she didn't um, find a way to have a new life. So... That's, that's Hunt and his sort of very, I think, very unconventional um, attempts to work out the kind of a new way of thinking about relationships between men and women, um, a fantasy perhaps that he has about equal relationships between men and women, about w women being a position where they can be independent in their choices. He certainly at this point didn't believe in marriage. He didn't see any point in it. Um, what I want to talk to you about now for a little while is about his religious paintings. And particularly um, The Light of the World, we have to start with this. And again, it's, it's fantastic that we've got um, one of the, uh, the smaller versions of this painting, which is also probably the most precious um, version of this painting in the exhibition. And I think that 1853, when um, this was completed marks the beginning of Hunt beginning to think about a more spiritual content to his art and also wondering about the spirituality of man. He's very, even in his autobiography, he absolutely unashamedly says that until this point he was an atheist. I think his decision to paint Christ 
in such an intimate way, and I think that's one of the reasons this painting has become so famous, because it's so intimate. It's not like those kind of heroic Christs of earlier times. It's like we're having a -a tete-a-tete with Christ. He's incredibly close to us, in the darkness, looking at us. I think it's a very exploratory painting on Hans' part, trying to think about if there is a spiritual element in man, if there's a spiritual element in himself, perhaps something that's very necessary at a point when he's in love with Annie. But it sets him off on a a search which is going to last his whole life, and that is a search for spirituality, which takes him um, to the Holy Land, famously. And he's, uh, again, he's very upfront in his autobiography to reprint the criticism that the light of the world received um, from people who felt that it wasn't truth to nature and people who felt that if you can't paint Christ because we don't actually know, like we know what a butterfly looks like, we know what a fallen woman looks like, but we don't know what Christ would look like. And of course this is a challenge to Hunt and off he goes to Jerusalem and he says, okay, this is what Christ looked like. And he paints um, a Galilean, a, a boy, um, he uses several models for this painting, but he paints the very famous scene of the finding the saviour in the temple but from the real locations, the real racial types, and in the real light of, of Palestine. But as soon as he's there, he gets very involved in the whole, um, the whole politics of the, of the area. He's fascinated by, um, by the whole sort of new kind of co- uh, idea of, of the world as a world, by the sort of tensions of nation against nation of different races, completely fascinated by them. He sort of, he reads the Quran, he reads the uh, Jewish texts. Um, and, and this image, I think, grows out of his um, anxieties that there is disruption and fighting between the different races, the different religious groups um, in the Middle East. I think he, in a very kind of prescient way, he sees the Middle East as a sort of microcosm of the tensions of the world. I think it's no accident that he's chosen a scene which unites Jew, Muslim, and Christian in one scene. The the Muslim mosque, the main mosque in Jerusalem at this point, was thought to be the original temple. And so he locates in the Muslim mosque um, the the Jewish rabbis, some of them recognizing the Christian Christ. So I think it's an attempt at... Um, suggesting the idea that you know that we do have things in common, and that the only hope for the area is if we we acknowledge those things that we have in common. So this is a painting which is both religious and political. And that was the point I really wanted to make to you was that Hunt has this idea of um, practical religion, and I think in the in our world, in the 21st century, particularly post 9-11, we can understand much better than people in the 20th century how religion could become a very practical way of negotiating problems, issues, um, just sort of negotiating the world. It could be a way of negotiating very private things, like bereavement, or what are we all here for? those kind of questions. But it also can be a way of negotiating political problems. I think we've all experienced that, whatever we think about it. And Hunt very much saw religion as a a way of thinking globally, as a way of thinking about the future of mankind, a way of thinking about how mankind should behave. 
And in particular, he had this idea of practical prophecy, that a prophet wasn't some old guy with a beard that lived ages and ages ago. It was a model for modern men to get off their backsides and do stuff and change the world. And he found his practical prophet in a Canadian called Henry Wentworth Monk, who he met when he was in Jerusalem and did this fabulous portrait of. And you can see that instead of a prophet scroll, he's holding the Times, the Times of London. You know, this is the prophecy of of, of modern life. And um, I think sort of um, uh, both Hunt and Monk shared this idea that that you had to actually make things happen in the way the old prophets had done. So, of course, when Hunt bought back the finding the Savior in the temple, this is the age before mass tourism. People were totally fascinated by this picture. People who hadn't been to the Middle East were fascinated by the detail, by the light, by the fantastic textiles. Remember, Hunt was the son of a textile um, warehouse owner. He knew all about textiles. And this painting... Um, was actually sold for the most money that any painting had ever been sold for, 5,000 guineas, which is roughly equivalent of about a couple of million dollars now. And and it made the dealer that bought it um, four times that amount, made him a multimillionaire, made Hunt a millionaire. And the painting was um, sold for so much money because of another very radical step that Hunt took, which was he decided not to exhibit this painting at the Royal Academy, which was pretty well unheard of then. Perhaps Prince, but, you know, not for a major painting. But he actually had a chat with Dickens. And Dickens said, you know, forget it. Go straight for the people. So what Hunt did was he sold this painting straight to a dealer, and the painting was exhibited directly to the masses for a shilling ago. It actually toured the entire country, went to Belfast, it went to Barnstable. Um, um, in, in Britain and made many, many thousands of pounds. But what was much more important to Hunt was seen by many, many thousands of people. And he, wasn't, he was rejecting the kind of rather aristocratic taste of the academy and the single patron who'll say, oh, yes, I'll have that in my gallery. Um, and he was appealing directly to the masses. It's one of the first examples of an artist really understanding exploiting mass media. In fact, there was a huge party held for this painting because it made the dealer so much money. And Hunt, luckily, was late for the party. He was actually travelling across London with the painting uh, in a carriage when the house that the party was to be held at blew up because um, the dealer had, in, uh, had um, put in so much gaslight because he really wanted you know, some razzmatazz at this party that he actually blew his own house up. This um, tremendous success uh, made Hunt really one of the most eligible men in London. And uh, he, when he returned, his idea, of course, was to get back together with Annie, that he was now in a position to give her a, a good life. And she modelled for him again, and she modelled for, for these two prints that are in the exhibition. I hope you can recognise her hair. And she also modelled for this painting here, which... One of the things that has only recently been recognised is that once Hunt came back from the Holy Land that first time, he, he, he thought, I'd done that. I'm an Orientalist painter now. I'm the greatest Orientalist painter there's been. Now I'm going to think about beauty and the old masters. And so he started painting these gorgeous portraits like the Henry Wentworth Monk, which is based on a Holbein portrait. And he started this 
beautiful, very intimate, very different kind of, of portrait of Annie. And uh, now, can you recognize her? It doesn't look like her, does it? No. The only bit we recognize of her is, of course, her hair. And, um, but the idea is that this is um, a kind of engagement portrait, that um, he, she, he is finally alone with her. One of the things we realized when we cleaned the painting was that the curtains in the background, there's a little kind of chink in the curtains. There's actually daylight outside. So they're sort of up together inside with the curtains closed, and they're finally... There's a, it's a painting of the kind of acceptance that he was sort of... was lurking in the background of all his other paintings. But unfortunately, Annie, he'd sort of... In a way, he'd done his job too successfully. Annie was a very independent woman by now. She's an extremely successful model. And she wasn't... She didn't want to be with him. She wasn't in love with him. And the relationship didn't work out. And in fact, rather paradoxically, she actually ended up with exactly the kind of man as there is in the awakening conscience, or with a swell, an aristocrat called Lord Ranley. Um, and Hunt eventually stopped having anything to do with her. And you would expect, wouldn't you, that she would be discarded by this man and she would end up roaming the streets, probably with an illegitimate baby, and um, die of despair. But in fact, he married her off to one of his minor aristocratic cousins. She had seven children, and she had a very happy and successful life. It kind of helped that she blackmailed Hunt for a £1,000, which is a lot of money then, uh, on the way to this marriage. Probably helped set them up. Um, but Hunt did do one other image of Annie, which is this, which again is in the exhibition, a little illustration of a poem about a will-o'-the-wisp. And I think what he's sort of... This is a rather sad image of, of, of a girl sort of being led into the wilderness by sort of glimmering lights and glittering things. But he was wrong about, about how dangerous that was. He was um, very cynical, I think, about love after that. But he did fall in love sort of belatedly with... Um, Fanny War, who was a middle-class woman, she was in her 30s. She never really, she wasn't the marrying type. She liked her independence. She was a very intelligent, intellectual woman. But she and Hunt fell in love, and she was incredibly excited by the idea of going, traveling with him, going back to the Middle East. And so he, you can, I, I just show you this letter that he writes to her, and the kind of incredible sort of exhilaration of those sort of lines. He's clearly totally infatuated. It was a very passionate relationship. And so he goes back to this portrait, and he replaces Annie's face with uh, Fanny. And that's why this is such a strange sort of palimpsest of a, of a painting. Fanny... Um, um, partly because of the problem of the um, um, blackmail. Um, although they were married, their departure for the Middle East was delayed. So Fanny was actually seven months pregnant uh, when they left. And it also coincided with an outbreak of cholera, which meant that the ports were closed and they were only able to get as far as Florence. And in Florence... Um, Fanny was eventually confined and gave birth to a child and died six weeks later. So they were actually together for less than a year. And Hunt was totally devastated. I think that if at any point he became an atheist again, uh, it is at this point. His letters really do doubt that there could possibly be a God. 
And he does a very unusual thing of deciding that he is going to be mother and father to the child. He refuses to send the child to be looked after by female relatives. He brings the baby up himself for the first year of the child. And he paints, well, he completes painting a picture that he started from Fanny. She posed for him lying down with her head, hair spread over a pillow. And it's an incredibly appropriate painting. It's from Keats again. Um, it's Isabella and the Pot of Basil, and it's a painting about mourning. Isabella has been in love with uh, a young clerk called Lorenzo, and her aristocratic brothers they don't want her to marry outside her class, and so they take him hunting, and they behead him. And Isabella goes and finds the head and digs it up and hides it in a pot of basil and um, dies madly weeping over her lost lover. And I think what's going on here is that this is a fetishization of the, of the physical body of the lover, an absolute inability to accept that it's gone, um, an inability to transfer your love to sort of more abstract level, to, to the sp- level of the spiritual, which I think Hunt very much experienced himself. He, he wrote how he was haunted by her body, about seeing her, her body, and so on. I think this is strangely his most beautiful painting but also his most hopeless he did eventually go home and he gave his little boy to Fanny's sister Edith to look after and he painted an image of Fanny because he wanted the little boy to be able to see his mother but at the same time and in his studio at the same time he also had a canvas in which he was painting a portrait of Edith to celebrate her 21st birthday. And she'd actually been in love with him ever since she was 13. He was, he was much older than her. And I think they fell in love uh, as he was painting the portrait, but there was never any question of it being fulfilled because they were too closely related. It was illegal to marry your deceased wife's sister in, in, in Britain at this point. But you can see the allusion to the love in that um, you have the two roses there which in the language, Victorian language of flowers mean, means love requited and it's a very I think it's a sort of an, an incredibly modern image of a woman because she has so many different roles in this painting she is, uh, there she is on her 21st birthday with all her gifts her gifts represent her sort of moving forward from maidenhood into womanhood but at the same time you can see that underneath those there is the black clothing of her mourning for her sister and I'm pretty sure that the coral and the amber that she's holding refers to her role as a mother, as a surrogate mother as well, coral and amber being used as teething things in Victorian times. So it's an incredibly complex persona that he's giving her with all these contradictory roles at once. And, of course, at the same time, it's forbidden love, which is the subtext of it. And Hunt um, left England, and he did get to the Holy Land, and there he painted... Um, his next great religious painting. And in this painting, he takes on... It's not, this is not a political painting. It's not about the possibility of world peace or the fear of world war or anything like this. This is a, a painting that is about bereavement, about the, the hope that the Bible promises that of resurrection, particularly of a physical resurrection. So he paints a picture that looks like those religious resurrection paintings. Um, and it's an incredibly troublesome painting because 
you know, uh, people have those, those Christian beliefs. They're sort of, it's easier if you keep it in the abstract, but you have to try and think about the, the uh, actual facts of a physical resurrection. If you really need to believe that, it can cause some problems, particularly to a man who's been reading Darwin, who's, not, mm-hmm. you know, who's very interested in science. So he paints the most physical Christ he can possibly imagine. And he also very, um, very radically paints the, um, an image of alienation from, from female love. This is, as far as I know, I'd be very grateful if anyone can correct me on this, but as far as I know, this is the only ever image of the Virgin with her back turned. And I think this is a very poignant image of dis- clear distinction, someone making a clear distinction between family and domestic love and duty and a sort of divine father. The idea of the divine father and Christ's duty and the, and the promise of resurrection that, you know, that, 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 that is in that and the sort of earthly love which, which he's had, which he's lost and which he sort of turned his back on in a way. I think this is a very poignant and personal interpretation of, of a religious subject. And it sold for £20,000 when it returned to England and was even more of a success than the finding of the saviour. And just to sort of finish up with, with, with Hunt's incredible success, incredible celebrity that he gained through his traveling, through his swashbuckling life, um, his bohemian lifestyle, um, and particularly through the, um, the light of the world. The little light of the world traveled all over. It came to Toronto. And in 1905, 50 years after painting it, he repainted it on an enormous scale. I'm afraid I've got them both the same size here, but you'll have to imagine the one is this big and the other one is more than life size. And he painted it as a kind of, like a kind of statue of liberty, as a kind of ambassador to peace. And it travelled all over the world, including coming here. Um, so here we can see it sort of being shown on a whole load of wool sacks in, in, in New Zealand, um, travelling around on a cart. Um, it was seen by millions and millions of people. So I just, I think that what we see with Hunt is in a way that he kind of invented the kind of artist that we've still got with us today. It's a very paradoxical kind of artist. The artist who is um, self-sacrificing, who's other, who's on the margins, who's the creative, inventive, restless. But at the same time, the artist who is, you know, mass marketing to millions who's a celebrity who's incredibly rich I think we recognise that kind of artist and I think Hunt pioneered that I think he's very important for other reasons as well, I think he's very important for being the first artist to paint optically being the first artist to exploit the mass audience, being the first artist to, to, um, you know, to, to explore these new psychological themes but most of all, I think he's just fascinating for the stories he tells, the human stories, and I hope that you're going to enjoy those in the exhibition.